if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've gathered together to surrender our lives. To say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not a radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. The Radical Together Podcast, with teaching from David Platt. Welcome back to another episode of Radical Together. And if you're new to this podcast, you can listen to all the previous episodes at Radical.net, or you can subscribe on iTunes. Today, we're sharing a sermon that David preached just a few weeks ago at the Southern Baptist Convention's Pastors Conference in Columbus, Ohio. His message is from Revelation 1, and it's entitled, The Indescribable Christ and His Indestructible Kingdom. If you you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to find Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I praise God for the grace that he's given me to lead the IMB, but I really miss being a pastor. So at the close of this conference, I stand before a group of pastors and pastors' wives, and I want you to know that I love you. I appreciate you and respect you deeply. And I believe I have a word from God for you. And I don't say that lightly or mystically. It's not some word I've manufactured for this moment. As I was praying about what to preach tonight, the Lord brought Revelation 1 clearly to my mind. And I thought, can't preach Revelation. So many different views and diverse interpretations. One preacher called the millennium a thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about. I have no desire to bring any further controversy into this convention. But as I began reading this text and seeing the portrait of Christ in the church here, while I was studying, I received an email from Tom Rayner with the latest statistical report showing how memberships and baptisms in Southern Baptist churches had declined this year. And people say different things about those reports, but as I read it, I just immediately thought about pastors who would be, who are in this room right now, some of whom are watching your membership decline. I thought about pastors whose memberships may not be decreasing, but you'd say to It's not increasing like you would like to see. I thought about those moments I had as a pastor when I would hear about somebody else's church growing by the hundreds or the thousands, and I really would want to be happy. But as much as I tried, my heart would sink if I wasn't seeing that kind of growth. So I thought about the pastors in this room and the potential levels of discouragement that, if we were honest, might be here. 
And even if your church is growing, I thought about the difficulties you may be facing as your church grows, as the church faces attacks from all sides in our culture. And then on top of all that, I thought about in a room this size, the many challenges that many of you are facing in your family, in your marriage, with your children, in your life. So what does Revelation have to do with that? And this is where we must remember that John did not write this book ultimately to inspire a Left Behind series one day. He wrote this letter to first century churches and church leaders who were struggling in all sorts of different ways according to Revelation 2 and 3. Some were struggling with sin, others in suffering, pain, persecution, facing first century threats and attacks on all sides. And in Revelation chapter 1, John gives us what is quite possibly the most majestic portrait of Jesus ever penned on paper. And it's as if the Holy Spirit was saying to a struggling church in the first century, look to Christ. Just look to Christ. So on this night at the close of this pastor's conference before this convention begins, I'm assuming that some, maybe many, of the pastors and wives in this room are discouraged or disheartened, struggling in this way in your life, your family, your church. And I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit is saying to us all across this room, look to Christ. Just look look to Christ. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you're feeling, and no matter what the stats may say, lift your eyes and see the indescribable Christ and his indestructible kingdom and take heart. So that's what I want to show us, the indescribable Christ and his indestructible kingdom. Revelation chapter 1, we'll start down in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one's like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. 
And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what is God saying to us in this room right now? This group of pastors and this convention of churches. One, I believe he's reminding us who we are. He's reminding us that we are in this room a family of brothers and sisters. John begins by identifying himself as I, John, your brother, from the very beginning, giving us a picture of the familial relationship that is there for followers of Christ. We are joined as brothers and sisters in this room, joined with brothers and sisters across our churches. For that matter, joined with brothers and sisters across the ages. John, who pins this letter, is our brother. I was talking with a man not long ago overseas who was considering coming to faith in Christ when his mom told him, son, if you become a Christian, I'll kill myself. What do you do when your mom says that to you? His dad told him, you will destroy our family if you become a Christian, son. This man followed Christ anyway. Thankfully, his mom did not kill herself, but she and his dad did desert their son, making Jesus' words in Mark 10 all the more meaningful to this new Christian. There is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers. This is an awesome reality we must never forget. We are a family of brothers and sisters. The Southern Baptist Convention is like one big family reunion with all that family reunions entail. (laughs) But we're not just a family of brothers and sisters. We're also an army engaged in a battle. John says, I am your partner. And he lists three things he partners with them in, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Remember, John writing this letter in a day of intense, inevitable persecution for Christians. And John says, we're facing tribulation together. And we need to endure together in Christ for his kingdom. He reminds them he's writing from an island called Patmos where he was banished as an exile. Why? Why? On account, he says, of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That phrase, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, is used three other times in Revelation. And every time it's used, it refers to Christians who are suffering because they trust God's word and they proclaim God's son. Revelation 6.9 describes martyrs who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Revelation 12.17 describes the dragon 
who makes war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Christ. Revelation 20, verse 4, describes the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Do you see the picture John is painting here? From beginning to end in this book, John makes clear there is a price to be paid for proclaiming God's word and God's son in this world. For when you do, you will be attacked by Satan. To use his words, slain, beheaded, exiled. And he's writing this letter to say to the saints then and the saints throughout history, it will never be easy. But don't stop proclaiming the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And brothers and sisters in this family, I am convinced there is a clear word from God there for us tonight. There is no question that we live in a culture increasingly hostile to Christ, a culture where it is increasingly costly to proclaim his word, particularly on issues like we've heard of manhood and womanhood and sexuality and marriage and abortion and racism and religious liberty, issues on which we must not be silent. We cannot pick and choose which issues we will address and which issues we will ignore in our preaching based on what is most comfortable to us and least costly to us in the culture around us. In the words of Elizabeth Rundle Charles, who was commenting on Martin Luther's key confrontation of issues in his day, it is the truth which is assailed in any age which tests our fidelity. It is to confess we are called, not merely to profess. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, then I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be steady on all the battlefronts besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Brothers and sisters, the battle is raging on a number of fronts and we cannot flinch. In our culture or other cultures, let's not fool ourselves when we think and talk about missions. For the more we aggressively take the gospel into other cultures, the more forcefully we will face the adversary on his front doorstep. Going to the unreached means going to peoples among whom Satan has had his way for generations. And let us be sure he will not go down without a fight. Unreached people are unreached for a reason. They're hard to reach. They're difficult to reach. They're dangerous to reach. All the easy ones are taken. We're talking Syria and Somalia and Nigeria and North Korea, places where people will oppose you when you bring the gospel to them. Some of them peoples who will kill you if you try to bring the gospel to them. You say, well, why should we go to them? Why would we send young families with young children to go to those people or those places? Here's why. Because there was a day when you were running from God and everything in you opposed him. But this God did not give up on you. Neither did he stay away from you. This God came running after you. He sent his son as a sacrifice for your soul. He was crucified on a cross for your salvation. So now it just makes sense as a sinner saved by that kind of grace to go to the most rebellious, the most resistant people on the planet and to lay down your life for the sake of their salvation. 
We're an army engaged in a battle. We are partners in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So let's lock arms as a family of brothers and sisters engaging the forces of hell here and around the world. That's who we are. We'll return to David's message in just a moment, but I want to take a moment to invite you to be a part of the Send North America Conference on August 3rd and 4th in Nashville, Tennessee. The Send North America Conference is a two-day gathering of the church in North America. The heart of this gathering is to see a movement of people from within the church living out the mission of God in their everyday lives. We hope you'll join David and other leaders like Russell Moore, Matt Carter, J.D. Greer, and many more. You can get additional information and register for Send North America at sendconference.com. We hope this podcast has been a helpful resource for you. And if you're interested in additional resources from David Platt, visit Radical.net. There you can find audio and video sermons, blog posts, and information about catalytic events like Secret Church. Now let's get back to David's message. Now see who he is. John tells these brothers and sisters engaged in battle. Verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Did you hear that? Verse 11, this voice blasts like a trumpet. Try to hear that. A voice that blasts like a trumpet and says, write what you see in a book. That's hard to do. It's one thing to write in words what you hear with your ears. It's a whole other thing to write the wonder of what you see with your eyes. You got a pen and a piece of paper and somebody says, write down what you see in the Grand Canyon. And you look at your pen and your paper and you think there's no way to put down on paper the grandeur of what I see in front of me. So do you feel the magnitude of John's task as he turns and he sees the voice? And that's all another thing. How do you see a voice? He sees the voice of the one who's speaking to him and he attempts to describe the indescribable. And this is where I want us all across the room Right now, just to see what John saw. So picture it for the next couple of minutes. Just see Jesus. Lift your attention, your affection to this portrait of Christ. At least 16 characteristics here. There's probably more. You might write them down. One, he's a man. John says he's like a son of man. Just imagine John's perspective. He would spent three years with Jesus on earth. Every day, walking and talking and eating together. Then after three years, he'd seen Jesus slaughtered on a stick. Three days later, risen from the dead. Then days after that, Jesus ascended into heaven. That's the last glimpse John had of his friend and his savior and his king. So now he turns and he sees him again. Just imagine his emotions. Jesus, no longer robed in earthly humiliation, now robed in heavenly exaltation as man and as God. Second characteristic, Jesus is God. All throughout the vision, we see links between Jesus and God the Father. Earlier in the chapter, God spoke and said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now Jesus speaks and says, I am the first and the last. Now that's audacious. 
to use a name for yourself that's reserved only for God. But it's not audacious, it's authentic because he is God. He's God. He's man, he's God. Third, he's the fulfillment of prophecy. In both Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, we see a vision of a man who will usher in God's kingdom, clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist, with eyes flaming like torches, with arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, whose voice echoes like a sound of a multitude. That's the exact same images we're seeing here. These images are not John's answer to the question, what is Jesus' fashion sense? wonder what he's wearing today in heaven. Now these are images that would have been familiar to John's readers, that would have triggered in their minds prophetic pronouncements. These images would have evoked in their hearts historic wonder at prophecy proclaimed centuries before. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Fourth, he's the final high priest clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Six of the seven times a long robe like this is mentioned in the Old Testament. It refers to the clothing of the high priest who would enter into the most holy place to offer sacrifices for the sins of God's people. Here Jesus pictured as the final high priest who is entered into the presence of God the Father, offered a full and final once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. Golden sash around his chest, signifying dignity and royalty. Fifth, Jesus is infinitely old. The hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow, a clear reference to age. I mentioned this is the description that Daniel gives of God as the ancient of days in Daniel 7. Now it's applied to Christ, for he has existed forever. Jesus did not begin. He's infinitely old. Sixth, he's infinitely wise. In ancient culture, white hair, a symbol of accumulated wisdom through years of experience. The experience and wisdom of Christ knows no end. Seventh, he has knowledge of all things. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Nothing escapes his gaze. He sees it all. He knows it all. He knows everything in the universe. And as humbling as it is to ponder, he knows everything about us. The eyes of Christ pierce through all of our pretense. He sees the purity of our hearts and he sees the stains of our hearts. Nothing escapes his all-searching, all-knowing, pure, penetrating gaze. Which leads to the next characteristic. Eighth, he's holy above all things. Feet like burnished bronze, a picture of pure, perfect power. Ninth, his voice resounds with authority. First, his voice like a trumpet. Now it's like the roar of many waters. What imagery? What does a voice that sounds like the roar of many waters sound like? And from his mouth, get the picture, from his mouth comes a two-edged sword. It's double-edged, declaring eternal salvation for all who turn to him and eternal judgment for all who turn from him. His voice resounds with authority. i got to pause here and tell you a story I heard the other day from one of our missionaries that speaks to the authority of Christ's voice. This missionary was sharing the gospel with a guy on the streets. And the missionary had a New Testament with him. And the guy he was sharing the gospel with was looking at the New Testament and he remarked how it had nice, thin paper that would be really good for rolling cigarettes and smoking them. So the missionary thought for a second and then said, I tell you what, I'll give you 
this New Testament with all of its nice paper if you'll promise me that you'll tear out a page and read it, or before you tear out a page to make it into cigarettes, you'll read that page. The guy thought about it and said, okay, I'll do that. The missionary said, so I have your word that before you use a page to make cigarettes, you'll read it. Is that right? The guy said, yeah, that's right. So the missionary gave him the New Testament and left. A while later, missionary, back on the same streets, ran into the same guy, asked him if he was keeping his promise to read the pages before he rolled them into cigarettes. And the guy said, well, I read and smoked my way through Matthew. And then I smoked my way through Mark and Luke. He said, I smoked all the way to John 3. And I read this verse, verse 16, and everything made sense. I realized that God loves me so much that Jesus died for my sins, so I've asked him to forgive me and to become my Lord. Ha! And, and just to finish out that story, this guy who smoked his way through the New Testament is now training to be a pastor. Now, I'm not recommending this particular strategy for evangelism But I am reminding us the word of Christ is sharp. It has authority to save all on its own. His voice resounds with authority. And his face radiates with light. Tenth characteristic. Like the sun shining in full strength. Such that John falls at his feet as though dead. And then Jesus. So imagine this. Jesus lays his right hand on John. Just put yourself in John's shoes here. He's on his face, feels right hand. Jesus looks at him and says, fear not. I am the first. 11th characteristic. Jesus has had the first word in creation. Colossians 1, by him, all things were created. All things created through him, for him, before all things. He had the first word in creation. And number 12, Jesus will have the last word in creation. He will fully and finally usher in new creation. Jesus is the force behind all human history. He alone able to bring divine purposes to pass because he has conquered. 13th characteristic, Jesus was dead for a time. I love this. Jesus says, I died and behold, I am alive forever. Jesus was dead for a time, but 14th characteristic, Jesus is alive for all time. He is the living one who will never, ever, ever die again. He's alive forever. Fifteenth characteristic, death is controlled by him. Jesus is holding the keys of death and Hades. Keys, a symbol of authority in Jewish thought. In Jewish thought, Jesus says, I have authority over death. I speak and death listens. I speak and death obeys. Satan doesn't determine when we die. Satan doesn't have that authority. Jesus does. And because Jesus has authority over death, he has the ability to turn it into gain. Over these last nine months that I've been in this role, I've seen Southern Baptist missionaries lose their lives on the mission field. The specifics, for a variety of reasons we're most often not able to talk about. 
So many of these situations you will never hear about. When I've received a call in the middle of the night, when I've called spouses or parents, when I've talked with children who've lost a parent, I have spoken to them with hope. Because that husband's wife and that child's mommy knew the king who controls death such that when her heart stopped beating and her lungs stopped breathing on that foreign mission field, Jesus Christ himself asserted his authority over death and welcomed her home. Death is controlled by him. No, characteristic number 16, no one or nothing compares to Jesus. At least 16 different characters. We could hit more if we had time. But just brothers and sisters, gaze upon the indescribable Christ. And then see this. So see this. See where he is and what he holds. He's holding, he's in the middle of lampstands. What are these lampstands? What are these stars? Well, Jesus tells John. Jesus is standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. And Jesus tells them that the seven golden lampstands symbolize the seven churches that John is writing to. These churches that are struggling with sin, churches that are struggling amidst suffering, and see it, the indescribable Christ is right in the middle of them. He holds seven stars in his right hand. What Jesus says to the angels of the seven churches, angels who in some way represent these churches. And Jesus is holding them in his right hand, his hand of, his, hand of authority, possessing his people, protecting his people in the midst of all they're going through. And using his people for a purpose. That's the whole point of a lampstand, right? To provide light. So this is where we, in this room, through this word, must see the indescribable Christ and his indestructible kingdom. See it. See it. No matter what stats may say, as long as this Christ is in the middle of his people, then nothing, no matter how fierce, can or ever will destroy them. Nothing. Indestructible. Hear this word, struggling pastor. Hear this word, hurting pastor's wife. Hear this word, discouraged, disheartened, doubting, brother or sister for whom faith is hard to find some days. Hear this word, church in the midst of a hostile culture. Hear this word, church on mission to foreign cultures. Jesus is present among us. Jesus. See him. This Jesus, this indescribable Christ, fully man, fully God, the fulfillment of prophecy, final high priest, infinitely old, infinitely wise, with knowledge of all things, holiness above all things. Hear his voice resounding like many waters. See his face radiating with light. The one who had the first word in creation will have the last word in creation. The one who's dead for a time and now is alive for all time. The one who controls death with whom no one or nothing can compare. This indescribable Christ is in our midst right now. He's here. He's among his people. Do we realize this? Jesus, this Jesus is not distant from us. He's not just over us. He's here with us. 
He's here. And he's with your church every Sunday you gather together as his people. He's there. I know there are days when it feels dry. Days when you walk away discouraged. But take heart, brother and sister. He is with and among his people. This Christ present among us and he possesses us. He holds his people in his hand. He's holding you. He's holding you. Hear this word from God. He's holding you in his hand. For some pastors and wives and churches in this room, the world seems to be spinning right now. But Do not be dismayed, brother or sister. Christ himself holds you in the grip of his gracious governance. And you belong to him. We belong to him. And as such, Jesus protects us. He guards us. He guides us. He does not leave his people alone in a world of sin and suffering. This Christ protects his people. When I was a Moving into high school, I loved playing basketball. The only problem was I was a short little runt. And so every time I threw the ball up, it would come back in my face. But I, I got invited to, uh, to basketball camp during the summer off at a university. And uh, I got there and found out that it was the custom for seniors to take freshmen and initiate them. And so one day, me and my buddy are sitting in our dorm room, and uh, all of a sudden the door busts open, and these senior guys come in, they grab my buddy, they take him to the bathroom. I'm not sure exactly what happened, I just heard a lot of screaming, and my buddy came back with very wet hair, (laughs) and heard the toilet flush, it was just, it was not pretty. And so they throw him down on the bed and then they come over to me. The guy picks me up and he turns to begin to take me out. Well, right about that time, another senior guy rounds the corner into our room and he sees this guy picking me up to take me out. And this guy just rounded the corner says, stop, we can't take him. And I didn't know who this guy was that just came around the corner, but I loved that man. And he says, stop, we can't take him. And the guy who's holding me says, why can't we take him? And the guy just around the corner said, we can't take him. That's Platt's little brother. See, I had me a little secret weapon (laughs) called an older brother uh, named Steve. And uh, Steve was not so much a runt. Uh, Steve, just to give you a picture, was... uh, Heavyweight state wrestling champion in Georgia. Oh, yeah. So I'll never forget what happened next. This guy who's holding me, he's, he turns and he looks me up and down. And he said, this was his exact words. He said, this is not Platt's brother. This is Platt's left leg. think he meant that as a compliment 
But I was pretty proud to be Platt's left leg at that moment. And he puts me back on, down on the bed and we, he goes out of the room. I remember another day, I, uh, I'd gotten a jacket from my uh, grandfather. Loved this jacket, wore it all the time. Warm outside, still got the jacket on. Just wore it everywhere. And I had worn it to school one day and I'd set it down. And uh, I came back at the end of the day to get it and it was gone. Somebody had stolen my jacket. My dad was picking us up from uh, school that day, and uh, uh, I told him what had happened. So he came in, started talking to the principal, and I'm just kind of sitting over, this tie, over the side, just pretty bummed because this jacket that my granddad had given me is gone. And uh, uh, my older brother Steve comes over to me and he says, uh, Hey, Dave, what happened? And I said, Well, somebody took my jacket. He said, Let me see what I can do. <laughs> and I see uh, Steve walk over to kind of a, a ringleader there at school and uh, say, uh, hey, uh, my brother lost his jacket and I know you know who's got it, so uh, you need to get it back to me by tomorrow morning or else you and I will have a talk. <laughs> so I, I'm sitting there in my first class the next morning, just right by the door, just kind of looking out in the hall and I see around the corner uh, comes Steve, and you'll never guess what he's got in his hand. <laughs> he comes to me, he hands me that jacket, and he says, David, just know, no matter what happens, your brother's always got your back. So pastor, pastor's wife, hear and know this. No matter how great the struggle, no matter how rough the road, no matter how profound the pain, no matter how serious the threat or steep the trial, no matter what this world or all the spiritual forces of evil in it throw at you, know this, Jesus Christ on high has got your back. He is with you. He hear this. He holds you in his hand. He guides you with his hand. And as such, you have nothing to fear. So fall down before him in worship. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we never cease to be amazed by his magnificence. May we never grow casual in his presence. May his glory always captivate our imagination. May we ever see the gulf of grandeur that separates us from him. May we fall on our faces every day in healthy fear of his holiness and hopeful anticipation of his return. Oh, John waits 21 more chapters to tell us the best news. Revelation 22 verse 4. One day we're all going to see his face. We're going to see him. The indescribable Christ is coming back for you and for me. So endure today. Endure today, brothers and sisters, in view of that day. In this world where we're bombarded by sin and suffering every day, in this world where it's challenging to portray Christ, dangerous even to proclaim Christ, make no mistake about it, our best life was never intended to be now. Our best life is coming when our king splits the sky. We see his face. So fall down and worship now, then rise up as witnesses until he comes. John, Jesus says, John, get up, write down what you've seen. Obviously, we're not writing a biblical book in this room, but we have a vision to voice. 
I have a picture of Christ to proclaim to the world. This is the word of God to this convention of churches, this family of brothers and sisters, this army engaged in a battle. We've been commissioned as witnesses to our king to proclaim the gospel of his kingdom in communities and cities across North America and rural villages and urban centers across the nations. So do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of what people may say to you. Do not be afraid of what governments may do to you. Do not be afraid of whatever may come for the indescribable Christ is building an indestructible kingdom and one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's all for today's episode of Radical Together. Thank you for joining us. For more resources from David Platt, including those in other languages, visit Radical.net. And don't forget that you can get information and register for Sin North America at SinConference.com. And for more information on the International Mission Board, visit imb.org. Join us next time for more teaching from David right here on the Radical Together podcast.